As of March 12, 2020, COVID-19 has infected over 134,000 people and killed almost 5,000. In the U.S., public health officials have reported 1,573 infections and 40 deaths. The world clearly is trying to control the spread of COVID-19. Italy recently imposed a quarantine on its entire population, closing all shops except grocery stores and pharmacies. And major companies like Facebook, Google, and Walmart are canceling large events and restricting travel for employees. And many universities are moving classes online for part or all of the spring. The good news, the number of infections in China, where the virus originated, are subsiding. And the vast majority of cases globally are not lethal. And at least 80% of cases, symptoms seem to be indistinguishable from a typical cold. The bad news, this coronavirus, which is in the same family as common cold viruses, seems to be quite infectious. Most people exposed to the virus tend to spread it. And in older and immunocompromised people, infections are often more severe with higher mortality rates. The virus is brand new. So there's a lot we don't know about it. And that makes it difficult to predict where it will spread and how it'll affect populations. First of all, we don't even really know how many infections have occurred. Many people are asymptomatic, meaning that many cases in the U.S. and around the world could be going unreported. In the U.S., the lack of test kits has also made it hard to monitor the rate of spread and to identify the extent of the problem. The origins of the virus are still a bit of a mystery. Scientists are pretty sure the new virus jumped from an animal species to humans, but which species, we don't know for sure. Frustratingly, we knew this was going to happen. In 2018, a group at the nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, in collaboration with the World Health Organization, predicted that economic development that's driving people and wildlife together would eventually lead to a new coronavirus disease. In 2012, previous podcast guest David Quammen published Spillover, a book warning that the next pandemic would likely come from an animal host. In 2018, Cary Institute biologist Barbara Hahn, another previous guest of the show, also predicted that pushing humans and wildlife together would make it more likely for animal diseases to jump into us. On this brief episode, we talk with John Drake, a distinguished research professor and associate dean for academic affairs at the University of Georgia. At UGA, John also serves as the director of the Center for the Ecology of Infectious Diseases. We talk with John about what we can do to slow the spread of COVID-19, or at least limit its negative impacts on the most vulnerable populations. We also discussed whether there are steps we can take to avoid another epidemic like this one. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. This is Big Biology. Um, so, so, John, my first question is about uh, just this, the scope of the epidemic. So, you know, we've, I think we've all been glued to our, our phones and our, our web browsers and, and, and cruising for news. Uh, and so we have a sense of sort of the number of reported cases. But, um, you know, how, how many out actually are out there? Uh, what's the demography of those cases? And, you know, what, what actually are the, the mortality rates? So those are questions that we would all like to have better answers to. Uh, we don't know how many cases are out there, uh, largely because we now understand increasingly many of these cases are asymptomatic. Um, whether we should consider them cases of disease or not uh, also is kind of an open conceptual question um, because we don't know mm. whether those asymptomatic cases are contributing significantly to the transmission of the pathogen between different people. Mm -hmm. um, I see. And when you say asymptomatic, I mean... Do you mean like there's really no symptoms whatsoever? Person doesn't know they're sick or person doesn't know that they're infected. I think that's right. I think that you could have just a very mild disease that, um, uh, you know, 
clinical reports are suggesting with, you know, for instance, a cough. Um, and, uh, and you might not uh, attribute that to uh, the novel pathogen. Um, and the only way that you could find that out later on is if you would test it for some reason. Um, and the extent of testing that we're doing uh, in the United States particularly, but worldwide, is just not enough for us to estimate what the total um, disease burden is. So in places like China, where there are clearly more cases, do we have any sense of how many infections? It's probably too early, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do we have any sense of how much transmission is probably from asymptomatic versus those with fevers and other diagnostics? I don't think that we have a really good handle on that. I was um, uh, working with a colleague a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he was estimating the amount of um, transmission from uh, from these pre-symptomatic cases or, or asymptomatic cases. He figures it was probably about half as intensive as the, the kind of transmission that we would observe. Hmm. Um, I think as uh, epidemiologic investigations increasingly are able to put together chains of events, so uh, infection that starts with one person and then moves on to another and a third, uh, we'll get maybe a better quantitative sense of how many cases are just kind of completely unattributed. Um, and when there's not a known exposure uh, and that becomes frequent, that's when you start to understand that there's probably a, a fair amount of asymptomatic transmission going on. Based on very specific, well-documented cases, uh, we know that um, that transmission from people who are mildly symptomatic um, is uh, certainly possible, but the extent of that really isn't known. I want to just jump in and ask about um, the biology of, of people who are not particularly affected or who are asymptomatic, and and also about kids, right? So unlike unlike many pathogens and diseases that seem to hit you know younger kids hard, this one appears not to. And so so what is it about the biology of of these people? Um, you're asking lots of really good questions today. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have a good answer to that one yet. Um, it's something that there's been some um, speculation about. Uh, for myself, um, I'd actually like to see good data on what the attack rates in different age um, brackets are in order to be able to actually document the, um, this uh, uh, um, pattern of uh, age-specific uh, infection. Um, in order to do that, you need to understand something about uh, the population at risk uh, and then the exposure of that population. In confined populations, like on the um, Diamond Princess cruise line, uh, you have the possibility of, um, you know, where everybody was, uh, was tested, you have the possibility of uh, determining what the age-specific attack rate is. But from passive surveillance, where all you're doing is picking up reported cases as um, uh, uh, you know, case notifications um, due to hospitalization, well, then when you have um, a spectrum of symptoms, you could actually be missing a lot of, uh, of those cases. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, yeah. So it might be that, that, um, uh, that kids aren't particularly um, less susceptible, but if they're symptoms are less severe, we're just re uh, reporting that less. Um, and it's going to take some, um, some careful studies and uh, of um, well-described populations like the Diamond Princess population before we actually have an answer to that. Interesting. Do you know anything about the demographics of the, the folks that were on that ship? I mean, is there anything there that... I don't. Okay. Huh. 
I haven't, I have not seen a, um, uh, you know, a published report on that yet, but I expect there will be one coming out soon. Hmm. So on the topic of, um, different, uh, population effects, uh, I mean, at least on the, on the mortality side, the, one of the more, most surprising things to me and, and something that I've been talking with other colleagues about are the, the different mortality rates. I mean, is, is there something about the way that the data are being collected that might explain the, the big differences in mortality rates in, say, Italy versus other places? Um, I think what you're referring to is that there seems to be a, a quite high case fatality rate uh, among the oldest age classes. Um, and uh, uh, for middle-aged and young people, the case fatality rate um, is much, much smaller. Um, I don't know that the epidemiology of uh, uh, fatality has been worked out either. Um, I think that's uh, another one of those questions that we're trying to answer as we're collecting um, uh, data as the epidemic is um, uh, ensuing. Um, you know, initially, uh, the... Uh, Initially, the main goal is just to estimate um, what the average case fatality rate in a population is. That by itself is hard to get a handle on during the course of an outbreak. Uh, the reason is because the case fatality rate is defined as the, the number of cases um, that end in, uh, in death divided by the total number of cases that occurred. Um, well, uh, it, during the course of the outbreak, Many of those things are not yet observed because you'll have people that are sick and in the hospital and not yet uh, uh, and haven't reached either of those endpoints of either recovery or mm -hmm. um, uh, or fatality. Uh, we have ways statistically to try and estimate the case fatality rate, nonetheless, um, and the numbers that um, that you see reported in the literature, uh, you know, between two and four percent, um, are primarily based on those uh, those estimators. Yeah. And, and just for context, can we say what what the relationship is between that mortality rate and mortality rates for other sort of common major diseases around the world, like like the flu? So so what's the mortality rate of the flu? Uh, my group has put up a website. Uh, it's 2019-coronavirus-tracker.com. And one of the tabs on that website is uh, um, called Context. And uh, uh, if you scroll down to the bottom of that, there's a um, uh, you can look at the, uh, the case fatality rate of, uh, of COVID-19 compared to other coronaviruses. And uh, um, for instance, the 1918 H1N1 flu. And uh, it seems that COVID-19 is probably in the same ballpark as the 1918 flu. Hmm. And, um, and that's despite, you know, a hundred years of medical progress, right? Uh, that's right. Um, so maybe let's talk a little bit about the, the control efforts. Um, and namely, I, I think we'd all like some good news. What are we doing well? And we could mean globally or, or in the States. Um, so uh, I think that um, we should recognize the effort that China went to to try and contain the outbreak within uh, within mainland China. Um, I think that the, um, the quarantine, what uh, in the media people are calling the lockdown, um, is really unprecedented in human history. Uh, and um, it was very costly to, um, to that society to do so. And 
I think that that probably bought us um, uh, a significant amount of time uh, preventing spread to other parts of the world, uh, enabling us to um, be better prepared. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I noticed that uh, people are, uh, it seems um, widely compliant with um, requests for uh, self-isolation and quarantine when returning from uh, travel to areas where um, transmission was higher, for instance. Uh, so that's something that I think we're doing well. Um, I think that uh, the global society is learning how to interact with people with less uh, uh, interact, you know, interpersonal interactions with less um, direct contact. Uh, and I think that those are good hygiene habits that we need to be uh, adopting. Uh, so I see that happening. I think that's good. Um, I think that our global planning and preparedness is probably inadequate. Um, I don't think we've really been ready for an epidemic like this, although uh, we probably could have seen one coming. So, so if you could dial back 10 years and foresee this coming, you know, what, what would recommendations be for becoming prepared? Um, so hospital capacity is one concern. Uh, so making sure that um, uh, for an attack rate as high as we saw in, uh, say, the province of Hubei, um, that everywhere in the world we are able to expand hospital capacity in order to, um, uh, to provide care to the number of people that need it. Um, I think that uh, communication uh, between different nations uh, and, uh, um, and within uh, um, you know, uh, nations would be, um, uh, could be improved. Uh, so I think that we've seen improvement in um, uh, maybe the first time that there was significant international mobilization around uh, monitoring uh, an emerging zoonosis is the H1N1 pandemic, uh, which um, uh, fortunately turned out not to be uh, as um, as severe. Uh, uh, the disease wasn't as severe as we initially uh, feared that it might be. Um, every significant global pandemic since then, for instance, the epidemic of Ebola that started in West Africa, um, the Zika epidemic, uh, I think we've seen increasing cooperation and responsiveness and, uh, um, and global understanding of uh, um, what, you know, what we need to do in order to be able to uh, um, contain the outbreak as much as possible, uh, uh, minimize the damages, uh, minimize the knock-on consequences, whether they are economic or health consequences. Um, that uh, um, uh, that come from disruption to health systems um, because of uh, human behaviors, the allocation of resources, all of those kinds of things that have consequences for how our societies live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I just heard a, a report, um, I think it was on the Daily Podcast, uh, about the WHO really putting China and South Korea up as sort of examples um, about successful control. And I think we're, it's going to be a while before we learn all of the different things that they've done. But do you know, uh, I mean, what, especially in South Korea, what sorts of things have happened that may be relevant to us at, the, at our, during our, you know, given our timeline? Um, 
I don't know very specifically about South Korea. Um, I think that contact tracing has uh, been intensive and that's helpful to identify people who've been exposed and then to encourage them to, uh, um, to isolate. Um, there have been, for instance, uh, restrictions to um, travel and human movement. Uh, and I think that those have had measurable effects on transmission. Um, unfortunately, uh, with something as contagious as the COVID-19, it's not possible once you have um, widespread transmission to completely contain uh, the epidemic, but um, you can perhaps direct the path of the epidemic in some ways. Uh, and especially, um, you know, people talk about flattening the curve, which basically means what we'd like to do is spread out the time of when people uh, who may eventually become infected when they become infected to ensure that um, that uh, hospital uh, capacity isn't exceeded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, that, that was sort of my follow-up question after what we've done. What have we done well? What could we do better? What are the the uh, options for flattening the curve that we have right now? I think that many of the um, most effective. Uh, reductions in transmission come from uh, individual pr protective measures that people take. Uh, hand washing, um, social distancing, uh, preparation of food, uh, individual choices about um, the intimacy of contact that you might have with people, shaking hands or not, that kind of thing. Um, collectively, learning to adopt those hygienic practices and being prepared to uh, to enact them, well, I think it's something that we could do better and could have a huge impact on uh, slowing the spread of the pathogen um, and, uh, uh, and reducing the peak size of the epidemic. Um, there's all obviously pharmaceutical interventions. Um, we don't have vaccines for um, for viruses that are new to science. So, of course, there's no vaccine uh, that we have available. Um, hopefully, uh, a vaccine can be developed in a timely manner, uh, but uh, that won't happen until after the first wave of the epidemic is complete for sure. Maybe just say for a minute, what, what are the roles of, of models, of mathematical models and epidemiological models in, in trying to understand the, the factors that are affecting the spread and the sort of ultimate extent of, of these diseases? So uh, modeling infectious diseases has really become an important part of uh, decision support um, for response in recent epidemics. Um, I think that's uh, very appropriate. Um, it is important to understand that uh, um, models can't tell you anything about the way the world is in the absence of data. So you always have to have models and data together. So what is it that models do? Um, I think that what models do is they help us to make our ideas clear. Um, well, what do I mean by our ideas? Well, there's all kinds of things that are, um, uh, that are possibly going on with the transmission of COVID-19 right now. Um, is there super spreading or isn't there super spreading? How extensive is asymptomatic transmission? How many secondary cases does every primary case give rise to? Um, is there a depletion of susceptible uh, population in local 
uh, areas and how does that feed back into the epidemic dynamics? We can theorize about all of these things, but it's very hard to put them together into uh, to have a, a comprehensive uh, and specific understanding of what the entailments of all of those ideas are in the absence of a model. So one of the things that a dynamical model allows us to do then is to take all of our ideas and put them together and ask what the consequences are if those ideas are right. Now, if we can then take that model and fit it to data, that allows us to do inference about whether those ideas are right uh, or not. Um, so model building, estimation, and inference are kind of all work together to help us to, to develop an understanding of, uh, um, of an epidemic. Mm -hmm. and, and to follow uh, up I on think that, that just, just briefly, uh, l let me ask specifically about super spreaders and, and just to make sure we're all on the same page. So a super spreader is somebody who is, for whatever reason, particularly prone to infecting other people. Is that right? They're sort of like a, um, a node for infection. Is that right? So super spreader is not really a technical term. Um, technically, we think that there is just variation in the number of um, secondary cases. Uh, and, um, and sometimes the, the range in that variation is relatively small. And sometimes the range in that variation is quite large. Um, and so there are, uh, in some epidemics, particular individuals who have gone on to infect a disproportionate number of people. Um, different. This is like the typhoid uh, Mary. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, so in the context of coronavirus, how have you guys done the models, and how how important are super spreaders to the overall dynamics? Uh, so we don't know yet. Um, there's actually relatively little information on what we call transmission trees, which is a trace of how particular clusters of infection are associated with each other. Uh, and we need to construct those transmission trees in order to quantify the extent of uh, sort of super spreading. Um, but uh, COVID-19, um, the pathogen that causes it, is relatively closely related to the um, pathogen that uh, caused the SARS epidemic uh, in the early 2000s. And, um, and certainly that kind of heterogeneity that gives rise to super spreading was observed then. So, uh, John, if it's okay, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and um, maybe talk about misunderstandings that I believe uh, sort of seeing are out there, or at least different people saying different things. Misunderstandings might be too strong. So um, one of the conspicuous ones is the utility of masks, and I don't know if you want to speak to that one. The one that I imagine might be more in your epidemiological wheelhouse is this other thing about summer and knowing that, um, you know, the, the colds and, and flu as well tend to become less prevalent in summer. If we should expect that things would subside faster than they otherwise would have had the outbreak started, you know, at a different time in, than, than, say, December um, when it did in China. What, what, are you, what are the expectations about what's going to happen in summer? Um, so those are both good questions. Uh, um, so... Uh, I, I talk a little bit about masks okay. and hygiene. Um, we don't know what the effectiveness of, uh, of masks for um, the, uh, the virus is. We do know that um, masks uh, can um, 
uh, cannot completely prevent a person from becoming infected with the virus. You'd have to have a proper respirator for that. But a mask can keep you from, for instance, um, touching your face or, uh, or putting your hands in your mouth. And so if, as a kind of behavioral guide, um, they encourage a person to engage in good hygiene, then um, I don't see why they couldn't be effective in that way. Um, the connection between uh, uh, viral respiratory infections and, um, uh, and seasonality uh, is not fully understood for influenza in particular, um, but also other uh, uh, respiratory infections. We know that there's a strong seasonal pattern. Um, what drives that seasonal pattern isn't entirely clear, uh, but uh, statistically, uh, that pattern is associated with humidity. And humidity uh, can affect um, the transmission of, uh, of viruses in a couple of ways. So one is that most transmission probably occurs when uh, a droplet that contains the virus is expelled by a person. Um, and then that droplet is, um, is picked up by another person, for instance, from a contaminated surface like uh, uh, a tabletop or a doorknob. Um, for uh, uh, transmission to occur, the virus has to remain viable uh, um, in that droplet for a period of time. And that viability uh, goes down with humidity. So when uh, um, humid... Uh, uh, you know, the temperature warms in the summertime, uh, it becomes more humid, uh, the viability of the, uh, um, of the virus probably uh, declines. Um, there's also evidence that there is uh, variable susceptibility um, to uh, infection based on seasonality. Some of that may also be related to humidity um, and uh, uh, and just uh, the, um, the first line of defense uh, against infection um, being more compromised in drier environments. Um, and there's also uh, probably some level of seasonality in, uh, in human immune response, uh, and that could be driven by a number of different things. <laughs> So, John, on the to, to follow up sort of on this this thing about seasonality, um, I know we have to be careful to uh, relate this to uh, the 1918 flu, but um, as I remember it, it was really the sort of second wave um, in the in the subsequent fall where things started to get much more troublesome. Um, how, how should we think about that? And you know, more specifically when the epidemic starts to subside in the places that it is, given that it does subside sometime during summer, is there, I mean, how, how do we think about what's likely to happen in fall and winter next year? Um, well, it seems very unlikely at this stage that um, after the first wave of the epidemic, it will go away completely. So I think that we do need to be prepared for a second wave next year. Um, hopefully we'll be more prepared from uh um, of vaccines, uh, uh, diagnostics, and pharmaceuticals point of view. Let, let, let me ask about this this first wave. Um, so we've heard people like 
uh, Angela Merkel suggests that you know perhaps up to sixty or seventy percent of Germans will eventually be infected. So, you know, if we if we project this out in different societies, um, what what's your feeling about what the the total percentages of people infected will eventually be? I think it's um, it's really premature to speculate about that. Um, I don't think that we should give up. Uh, yet trying to prevent infection from reaching a large number of people. I think through social distancing, um, good hygiene, uh, you know, careful intervention, um, we can prevent the infection from reaching a lot of people. And so, so I think the number of people that get it, uh, infected is ultimately going to be based on um, how effective those interventions hmm. are. And I don't think that we uh, specifically asked, we, we talked around it, but I mean, what is your feeling about the sort of elementary, middle school, high school closures. Is that a, a sensible mechanism for distancing or? And university closures. Oh, university, <laughs> sure. Um, so I do think that university closures makes a lot of sense at this stage. Um, I think that uh, closing schools um, uh, has a lot of knock-on effects um, in all societies uh, and that those effects are felt uh, most significantly by uh, the most vulnerable people in our societies. And so I think that should only be done um, uh, under careful consideration. But it may well be appropriate. Um, at this phase, we don't know how much transmission there is among children, but children do um, uh, contribute a lot to the seasonal influenza transmission. And I think that's probably our best um, uh, uh, guide at this point to what the epidemiology of COVID-19 is like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, I mean, if you, if you were all of a sudden given the authority to, to take the, the next two or three steps to flatten the curve, um, what, what would be your top priority? I mean, what, what, what would be the things that you would do? Well, in your email to me, uh, you said if, uh, uh with unlimited resources and funds, what would you do? <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think that increasing the distance between people is, is the most important thing to do. The problem is that there are costs of doing that. So there are costs of not going to work. But with unlimited resources, you could compensate for those costs. Um, I think that's one of the things that, um, that funding uh, could actually do. Funding can compensate people for uh, the costs of personally protective measures that they might otherwise not take. So, so if we have to make that idea concrete, like are you talking about... Um you know, the, the, the sort of government supporting things like paid leave or enforcing paid leave for, for workers at companies. So again, we're getting into sort of like policy questions, sure. uh, with uh, specific policy questions, which have not knock on consequences. Yep. Uh, and so how you actually deploy those to be as least disruptive as possible and maximally beneficial, um, is really quite a challenging question. One that I'm not an expert on. Um, but I do think that uh, reducing transmission uh, can come from reducing infectious contacts between people. That means reducing the number of contacts overall, the number of different people that any individual contacts, and the intimacy of those contacts. Um, uh, and so, for instance, uh, I think that for those people who are able to do so now, um, telework, work from home type arrangements make an awful lot of sense. Um, and I think that... Uh, Governments, companies, organizations should do what everything that they can in order to accommodate the 
um, personal protective measures that individuals might be able to take. Hmm. Um, this is maybe a question out of left field, but um, our producer suggested it, and I think it's a, I mean, it to me was a really interesting one. Um, what questions do you think reporters should be asking doctors and epidemiologists? I mean, what are the main things that you want to make sure that the public get? So, you know, the reporters are always asking about cases and how many kits and those sorts of things. But what are the major questions that you think they should be asking? You know, the clinical information that we have is relatively limited. The epidemiological information that we have is relatively limited. I'm not sure that those are actually the right questions to be asking. The reporters should be asking the doctors. Um, uh, the, um, the, the people that I think that the reporters should be interviewing are, um, for instance, the government officials, ranging from, uh, uh, from local officials all the way up to uh, um, heads of state to understand what their reasoning is uh, so that they can understand what the, um, uh, the rationale is for particular policies that might be taken. Um, that we could have a sort of a collective, better understanding of uh, um, what our, you know, coordinated or uncoordinated response to the current epidemic is. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Mike Levine manages our social media accounts and produces the student spotlights. And Dana Baxter helps with background research. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.